If you'll open your Bibles to the book of James, we are continuing on in James. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 2 today, uh, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 26. So this is um, one of those passages that I think most people who deliver sermons uh, approach with both a little bit of fear and also a little bit of excitement. So if you'll, uh, once you've reached that spot in your Bible, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So normally it is my practice to just get straight into the text. But this is a passage that I think lends itself to misunderstanding. So this passage that we're going to talk about has been a controversial passage. Uh, Martin Luther is famously, uh, famously, although this is not quite historically accurate, famously rejected the book of James from the Bible, and he called it a right strawy epistle. Uh, he could not reconcile the statement that Abraham was justified by works and that we are not justified by faith alone with what Paul said. Now, that's a little bit of a historical misread. He, he didn't reject the book. He just put it at the end of the Bible. Uh, he said that if anyone can reconcile this book with Paul, that he would give them his doctor's hat. So I'm hopeful today that I'll be earning Martin Luther's doctoral hat to place on my head, but uh, we'll see what happens. But because this is uh, subject to misunderstanding, if the person presenting the text is not careful, then it leads people not to a place of encouragement, but to a place of despair. So before we get into the text, I want to take a little bit of time to just recap where we've been and to just preach the gospel a little bit. Because if I forget to get to the gospel, then all is lost, and we shouldn't have even bothered to come today. So the reason this text can be a little bit difficult is because if the preacher is doing their job right, then those who hear probably will be either their conscience a little bit pricked, or they'll be outright offended. So think back to last year around this time when I was starting to preach through the Ten Commandments. And we talked about the different uses of the law. So the, the law is God's moral standard, primarily contained in the Old Testament, 
And there are three types of law. There was the moral law, which is universal and it's kind of baked into the fabric of creation. There's the civil law, which is God's um, statement to governments on how it is that they need to govern. And that's accessible to them by the light of nature as well. And then there is the ceremonial law, which is um, given to Israel to show them how to properly worship. That civil law for uh, judicial law, civil law for Israel, and the ceremonial law has expired with the nation of Israel. It's no longer in effect. However, the moral law stays in place. And that moral law in the hands of someone exposing the scripture uh, is used to either convict non-Christians of their sin, which is where the people who hear this who might be offended come in, is they are held up to the standard of God's law and they recognize they have no hope of possibly measuring up. Then ideally, the second use of this law is for those who are elect whom the Spirit has regenerated. It will call them to repentance in Christ, and they will turn to Jesus for salvation. And then there's the third use of the law, which is for Christians who um, recognize Christ as their Savior. This shows us how to live a moral life and how to look and live and be like Jesus. I'm sure as we continue our study in sanctification in Sunday school, We'll talk a lot more about that use of the law. So as I mentioned last time, uh, sometimes the law can be a little bit of a beatdown, and sometimes it leaves the Christian walking away feeling a little bit bruised. But as I said last time, I, like the author of Hebrews says, I'm confident of better things for us in this congregation. However, the law is there to serve to stir up Christians to good works and godliness. This is not always pleasant. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, I'm sure that most of us have heard this before, but the words used for stir up is actually a noun. And it's the sharp stick that the, the cattle rancher or that the shepherd would use to sort of prod their cattle along. It's not meant to be comfortable. It hurts. The, the word literally is just a sharp thing. So uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, let us consider how to use a sharp thing to stir one another up to love and good works. Think about a, a cowboy kicking his horse in the sides with a, with a spur. Could do some damage, but it gets him moving. That's how it's used for a Christian. So if, if you're in the congregation today and you're feeling pricked by the law, that's what it's supposed to do. So don't be discouraged when that happens. For the non-Christian, especially for those in this text who claim to be believers, but are not, it serves to condemn their lack of faith and their lack of trust in the Lord. So the, the primary command of the Bible is to trust in the Lord. Right? In the Old Testament, it's usually to fear the Lord. Right? Proverbs 1, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. For the non-Christian, for those who are not regenerate, who do not have spiritual eyes to see, this is an offensive passage, especially for those who think they have spiritual eyes and do not. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, and then also Keech's Catechism, which is kind of the Baptist version of this, defines justification like this. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins. He accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is a once-for-all declaration by God that we are not only not sinners, 
but that we are righteous in his sight. So if we had simply taken care of our sin, that would get us back to zero, right? That gets us to a neutral relationship with God. But Christ lived a, a life of obedience and he earned merit. He earned the Father's favor by his obedience. And that favor is given to us in justification. Sometimes you hear the theologians call it double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ and it's taken away. And his righteousness, his favorable disposition of the Father is given to us. It's the great exchange. Now, I'm not going to name names on this one because I don't necessarily want you to go out and chase down this theology and, and try to study it. If you're very curious, you can come talk to me after the service. But there are a number of famous teachers in our theological circles who would sort of claim the name of Baptistic Calvinists or Reformed Baptists or something along those lines who get this very wrong in a number of ways. So I want us to pay special attention to this last point here in this sort of intro. Justification happens once and for all. There is no second phase to justification. There's no assessment at the end of time that has not already occurred. Justification is when God takes that judgment of the last day and he copies and pastes it right into today. So when he says of one of us, justified, that's the final verdict. There are famous teachers out there right now that are otherwise perfectly sound or more or less sound who will tell you that you're justified by faith now, but in the last day, God is going to assess your works. And if you do not have sufficient works in accordance with that justification, that you will not be granted access into heaven. So hear that loud and clear. Justification happens once for all. It is immutable. It cannot and will not be changed. The judgment that you will receive in heaven is simply a restatement of the judgment that has already been applied to your account. Think of it this way. If you receive a notice in the mail that your debt has been discharged, let's say you you took out a big loan on a, a car or a home or something like that. And the bank, for whatever reason, has decided we're not gonna, we're not gonna cause this person to have to pay. Someone else came along and paid your bill, and you get a notice in the mail that says your debt has been resolved, you no longer owe us anything. It's not as though you would go to the bank the next time and they'd go, Oh, well, yeah, well, at the time that this notice was sent out, you didn't owe anything, but <laughs> you stopped making payments, so you still owe us a bunch of money. It's just incoherent, it's nonsense. So that brings us to the question of what is faith? If justification is by faith alone, then what is faith? Faith, classically speaking in Reformed theology and, and in Protestant theology, uh, which is grounded in the Bible and, and we believe is just the biblical teaching with a short, pithy way to describe it. We call it Calvinist or Reformed or Protestant. We apply these labels for shorthand of what we mean. It has three parts. There's a knowledge, which is a, a knowledge of the true facts of the gospel. This includes who God is generally. So think God is the creator, God is Trinity, who Jesus is specifically, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is incarnate, that he became truly man when he took on a second nature in the incarnation, what he has done for our salvation, and in some senses, the historical facts surrounding that. Think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. They include the fact that he was born of a virgin or that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried. There's historical facts that attend to um, the salvific facts, if you want to call them that. 
So we have to know those facts. Faith has a knowledge content. You can't just have faith in anything and think that you're saved. I can't have faith that the deer that lives in our backyard is actually the Savior and get anything from it, right? I might get certified as a little bit insane, but I'm not going to find out that I'm saved by that. The second component of faith is an assent to these knowledge, to these facts. So we have to believe that not only are these facts true, but they're true for our benefit. This is an emotional response to it. We appropriate those things. It would be like if someone says, well, I believe that my wife or my husband loves me, but I don't really get anything out of that, right? You don't receive that love until you acknowledge that it's true and true oriented towards you, true for you, that there's a benefit for you. And the last component, and this is one, again, a lot of popular teachers get wrong, is trust. The Latin is fiducia. Some people will define this as faithfulness, which is absolutely wrong. If you see someone define this last component as faithfulness, just close the book, set it aside, and go read Ephesians 2 again. This is where we engage our wills with all of the background theological statements about the Holy Spirit renewing our wills and all of this good monergistic theology that we all affirm. We engage our wills to receive from Christ all of the benefits that he obtained for our salvation right? Faith, this trust is an open hand that Christ puts the benefits of salvation into, and then we close our hand around it. That's faith. It's not us reaching out. It's not us living a life that has a certain character to it. It's not a certain affectional element or a certain emotional disposition. It's an open hand that, that receives from Christ what he has for us. Uh, one of the, the sort of classic definitions comes from Louis Burkhoff, and this is how he defines this third element. He says, the third element consists in a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ, and a reception and appropriation of Christ as the source of pardon and spiritual life. So you can see even in that third element, all of those pieces are there. We have to acknowledge that Christ is the Lord and the Savior, we have to acknowledge that we're guilty. All of those are facts. We have to receive and appropriate those. That's the ascent. And we have to trust that that's true. So turn back to Ephesians 2. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this fast because I know all of you, and I know that you know this, but I want to make sure you hear it. So Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 again, which was our meditation for today. And I'm just going to pause and make a couple quick comments along the way. Ephesians 2. You think I would learn to bookmark my pages? Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? So just pause for a second. We were just like everybody else. Our election does not place us in some sort of superior category. It gives God glory that he chose to save the unlovable, and to love the unsavable, and somehow he still did it. But it doesn't give us a justification to boast, and that's where Paul goes here. 
He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see how Paul has to like stop because this hits him so hard? He has to stop and remind himself and his readers that it is gracious that God saved us. And raised us up with him and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. getting ready to take Martin Luther's cap and put it right here. This is the reconciliation with James, right? Paul is not under any false delusions that you can just have a set of knowledge in your head and be saved from that. There's nothing in Paul that says that this bare intellectual knowledge does anything for anyone. In fact, in various places, he actually says the opposite, right? In Romans, when the question is, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? His answer is not, a long theological treatise, it's sort of a rude statement that says, you guys are idiots. You're asking the wrong question. What's wrong with you people? Right? That's how. That's basically what he says. God forbid, may it never be. His answer is, people who are alive don't act like people who are dead. So of course, if you have new life, that new life is going to live. But, however, that new life takes a particular shape. Good works have a particular structure and character. Now we're going to get to our text. That was just the, the prologue here, right? I do have my eyes on the clock, so don't panic. This passage in James that we're looking at is a, a continuation of what we've learned in the last couple weeks, the last couple times I've shared with you. Those who persist in sin have a reason to fear judgment. Many are self-deceived in believing that their religious profession is sufficient, even if they continue to live lives that are at odds with this. Right? In James 1.26, we read, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worth, religion is worthless. Right? And in that passage, we had in view someone who has external trappings of religion in one area of life, but has sin, unbridled sin, particularly in how they speak about and to other people in another part of their life. We also read about pure religion and how pure religion is spotless in, uh, spotless in front of God if it seeks to orient itself towards the good of others, right? By visiting orphans and widows. We saw in James 2, 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we learned that even if someone has this profession of faith, they say that they understand the forgiveness and grace of God, but they fail to or refuse to show mercy and forgiveness to others, that God will show no mercy to that individual. Not because the mercy earns them something, but because it demonstrates that they do not have the faith which receives Christ as Savior. Do you see that distinction? It's not that the mercy saves them. The mercy does not earn them salvation. It's not as though God looks at them and goes, well, I wanted to punish that person in hell forever, but since they were merciful, I guess my hands are tied. Instead, he looks at the person who is merciful and he sees 
this is a person who I have already saved and have made a merciful person. Do you understand that distinction? Do you see that? So turn back over to James chapter 2, and we'll pick back up in verse 14 here. So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, is basically the question that comes about after the first chapter here, the first part of the chapter that we talked about. He says in verse 14, he poses this question to his audience. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So this is kind of like the summary question from everything he said before. We've seen previously in James that there are certain ways to ask questions in Greek that indicate what the answer is supposed to be. This is an, a totally unambiguous, no, that faith cannot save him. This isn't a genuine question that he doesn't know the answer. This is a rhetorical question. And then he goes on, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He uses the same, uh, same phrasing here. What good is that? What benefit is that? What does that profit you? To basically say nothing. Profits you nothing. So think about um, think about customer service lines. I've worked a lot of different customer service jobs. I'm sure you've all had customer service jobs of one one form or another. And you get that phone call or that that the patient or that customer that is just not not a pleasant person. And at the end of the interaction, you kind of go, "Well, have a nice day." Right? You don't really mean it, and you don't really mean it because you've proven by your actions the intention of your heart. What you really mean is, I hope your day is as terrible as you make it seem. Or I hope your day is as terrible as as you've made my day. Right? I listen to a lot of phone calls in my current job, and I hear this all the time. And that's almost always the first thing that comes up is they were so rude to me. They said, have a nice day at the end. And I kind of chuckle because I'm like, well, is that really so bad? Of course it's bad. People can tell. And this is the same thing. Paul is not, or um, James is not just throwing this out there. He's saying that, the person who wishes someone who's hungry or has inadequate clothing wishes them well but does nothing to change it, that's the same as someone who says they have faith but doesn't have works. The benefit that that hungry, naked, homeless person has from your well wishes is the same as the benefit that you, hypothetical you, might have if you have faith with no accompanying works. That is nothing. There is no benefit. He goes on and he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, if you listen to the debates on this, if you were to get into a discussion with a Roman Catholic um, coworker or a, a family member or somebody in the community, they're going to try to tell you that this is the distinction between a faith that has works and a faith that doesn't have works. And now that makes sense from the text. We can understand how they get there. That is not actually what James is doing. James is drawing a distinction between this hypothetical insane faith without works that doesn't exist and what actual faith is. That is to say, faith without works is not faith at all. So we're not trying to draw this difference between someone who has faith in Jesus but is just living like a heathen, right? Sometimes this is difficult because we all have friends and family members that made a profession of faith at some point in their life and were baptized and probably grew up in the church. And they are living as though none of that mattered. 
And the reality is, and this is a hard teaching, so let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Lord has to say, they probably didn't have anything. We have no reason to believe that they had anything. That's what we're getting at here, and we'll expand that a little bit as we go. He goes on in uh, verses 18 through 20 to kind of overcome this hypothetical objection. So the, the Greek here is very difficult to translate. The, the Greek, it's not difficult to translate, but it's difficult to understand exactly what's being said. The ESV does a pretty good job. Um, both my own meager Greek skills and all the commentaries that I've read have confirmed this. It says, someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The strange thing about this is it sounds like James is the one saying uh, to someone else, that, that hypothetical person is saying, you, James, have faith, and I, hypothetical person, have works. But that's the exact opposite of what we would expect, because James is the one that is saying you have to have works. So instead, what we have to read, unless we want to just say this is totally incoherent, we have to say that this is a hypothetical conversation where somebody is drawing a distinction between two classes of people. There's the people who have faith without works is the implication, and there's the people who have works with or without faith because you can't see faith. Well, James is saying, no, no, you can't draw this distinction. There aren't people with faith and no works and people with works and maybe faith. There are people who have no faith and there are people who have faith demonstrated by works. And he proves that here when he says, show me your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So he's kind of throwing it back at them a little throwing it back at this hypothetical person. Calvin explains it this way. He says, the meaning then is this, unless your faith brings forth fruits, I deny that you have faith. Right? Calvin, the champion of the Protestant Reformation. Right? Nobody was more about grace than Calvin. I know sometimes we get this picture of him as this kind of like cold, judgmental, legalistic person. That could not be farther from the truth. James uh, 21 through 26, uh, chapter 2 here, continues Basically, James is proof text for his arguments. He's pulling back, drawing back into the Old Testament to support what he has to say by appealing to the scriptures. I'm not going to go through these um, because I, for the sake of time, there's, there's other things in this text that I want to pull out. But he, he points at Abraham. Abraham is the pinnacle of the faithful. Not only the faithful, but the faith-filled. Right? If you want to point to someone in the Old Testament that is the the character that shows what faith is the most, you point to Abraham. And how did Abraham, at his kind of most difficult point, prove that he had faith? By his obedience to sacrifice his son, Isaac, right? So James, James here is not saying that, you know, Abraham had this generalized belief in God, and then he, you know, his faith was confirmed, and then he was saved when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because when we look at the text, um, Abraham was, quote unquote, saved. He demonstrated true faith long before this. 50 years before this, when he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Even probably repeatedly throughout that time, he demonstrated that he had genuine faith in, in God. Genuine saving faith. And Paul uses this same, um, this same kind of formula, and he points at a different point in Abraham's life, and he uses the same argument. James here goes on and he points at Rahab from uh, Jericho, and he points out that even though she was a prostitute, she was also justified by works 
not uh, not just by believing what the people said about Yahweh, right? If you remember back to the account, the spies come to her and she says, I've heard of all the things that happened. I've heard about how the Lord took your people out of Egypt. I've heard about all the things that have happened in the desert. We've heard of his great power and everyone in the city has melted away in fear because of this. The other people in the city melted away in fear. She showed obedience. She recognized that God was coming, that this was his land, and she got on board with that. Again, that doesn't, that's not why she was saved. That's not how she became part of God's people. That reflected that she already was one of God's chosen people. It is in this sense that the Bible says that uh, you are not justified by works apart from faith, or by faith apart from works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, right? This, this hypothetical person that thinks you can have faith without works is a foolish person. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Look at these two Old Testament figures who demonstrated their genuine faith by these great acts of obedience. Rahab would have been killed if they discovered her. Abraham, if he uh, was unsure and he sacrificed his son, he was ending the promise. He was ending the line of Messiah promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's a pretty big amount of trust to know that God is faithful and big enough to accomplish his will, even if it seems totally impossible. So I want to I make sure to take the last few minutes of our, our sermon here to explain to you how it is from a sort of theological perspective and a, a text-level perspective that these two passages work together, that, that Paul and James are not hopelessly at odds with each other. So take your Bible and turn over to the book of Matthew. We're going to take a look at chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 2 through 6, and then we're going to jump down to verses 18 through 19. Now, if you recall back to our first sermon in this James series, I talked a little bit about, and I made reference to the fact that in the early church, there was Jewish Christianity and there was Gentile Christianity. Um, there are some letters that are called the Catholic epistles, but really what they mean is they're not sent to a specific church. They don't have like a direct address. They're universal. They're Catholic for the whole, the whole church. Then there's the um, Pauline epistles, which are addressed to a particular church. Paul's epistles represent a Gentile perspective. He's writing primarily to Gentiles in Gentile churches. The Catholic epistles primarily represent Jewish perspective written mostly to Jewish churches. The Catholic epistles also are written by people predominantly who grew up in Galilee and in, in Israel. So it should not surprise us that the metaphors and analogies and turns of phrases that Paul uses are different than the turns of phrases that James or Peter or John or Jesus uses, right? When I first moved here, I asked for directions to something and someone said, oh, you can't get here from there. I was like, what do you mean you can't get here from there? That makes no sense. Of course you can get here from there. What they meant is there's no real direct route. You're going to have to take this sort of securitous route. That made no sense to me, right? Or when I first got here, if I said, I'm going to go down to the cafeteria because I was living in Smyrna, I'm going to ride out of the cafeteria and get a pop. Everyone would have laughed at me and they did laugh at me, right? I saw a funny video online that was like, when Massachusetts people tried to name their towns, and it was like, they gave him a list, and he was like, Gloucester, Leicester, Wuchester, and he's like, Gloucester, Leicester, and Wooster. It's like, what? So there's this shared linguistic framework, right? That is part of how we have to reconcile Paul and, and James here. 
We have to recognize that James is using the word justified in a sense that is more influenced by the language and the culture present in Israel at this time period. Paul is using the word justified, same word, it's not like it's different Greek words, but he's using it in a sense that's more influenced by the legal tradition of Greek philosophy, right? So reading in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2, he says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus is basically saying, Do you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Take a look at what I do. Right? Jump down to verse 11. Sorry, verse 18. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Same word that Paul uses, same word that James uses. But what's happening here in the text? What's happening is the Pharisees, we learn in Luke that he's primarily talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees have come to him. They disregarded John. They didn't receive his baptism. They're disregarding Jesus. They're saying, John, John has a demon. He's this crazy guy out in the desert. And Jesus, he's a, he's a sinner. He hangs out with sinners. He eats and he drinks. But Jesus is saying, you can think whatever you want. Let's see what the proof is. Proof is in the pudding. Right? Look at what I do. Wisdom, that is the validity of what I say, is justified by my deeds. We might be better when the word is being used this way to translate it as proven or vindicated. Wisdom is proven by her deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Faith is vindicated by works. I will show you my works, my faith, by my works. I will prove or vindicate that my faith is genuine by showing you the good works that it produces. We could turn to the book of Hebrews for a similar point. I'm not going to for the sake of time. But in uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, which is the, the passage that we read or part of the passage we read, he goes on to say that we should have a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience if we hold fast to the confession of our hope. And he goes on to say, for, not but, for, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So those who lack any sort of discernible works, I'm not saying that they're not saved. That's not for me to say. I, I'm, I don't have regeneration goggles. I can't see what God has or hasn't done in your heart. I'm getting a snapshot in a moment of time. I'm making an assessment. Now, the Bible tells us we should make similar kinds of assessments, especially the, the church acting as the church and the officers of the church. Right? We've had instances in the past where we've had to remove someone from membership. That's a juridical act. That's a judging act that the church executes to say, we don't believe that you are a part of this congregation in truth because you've demonstrated by action that you are not. But we don't see every moment of every person's life. And especially as individuals, we don't have that right to make that judgment. What we can see though, is their works. 
And we can say, you don't appear to be living a life that's consistent with your profession. Brother, sister, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. Here's what Calvin says to kind of wrap up this little section here and then one, one point of application. He says, man is not justified by faith alone, that is, by a bare and empty knowledge of God. He is justified by works, that is, his righteousness is known and proven by its fruit. We're not going to turn there, um, but I do want to just make this one point of application. Because you should always leave from this place with something to do, with, a, with marching orders of some sort. So in 2 Peter 1, there's a, the famous passage that says, confirm your calling and election. Make your calling and election known. Particularly in verse 9, he says um, that he, if these qualities, and he's pointed to a bunch of godly characteristics that are, are developed in the elect, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being unfruitful and productive. They keep, these qualities keep you from being a person with dead faith. And he says, for if you lack these qualities, you are as good as nearsighted, forgetting that you have been cleansed from your sins. So when you go to work this week, when I go to work this week, when you go about your business, whether you're in the community or whatever you're doing, you're going to have those times where you pull some boneheaded stunt and you realize that you just blew it, right? I'm going to get angry at someone at work. You're going to get angry at someone in traffic. You're going to say something disrespectful to your parents or to your children, right? You're going to feel like you should be doing more and you should be doing more. But take heart because it's not that you have not earned your salvation or that you have lost your salvation. It's that you have forgotten the reality of who you are created to be in Christ. So rather than leave this place today feeling despair that we cannot measure up, leave this place feeling hope and encouragement and assurance that Christ has measured up for us. Sometimes we hear that our good works are the grounds of our assurance. If we're struggling with assurance, sometimes we're told to look at our works, to look at the fruit of our salvation. Fruit is a very important evidence. It's actually a better evidence uh, if it's lacking. That tells you more about the status of your faith than if, if works are present. But the real ground of our assurance is the finished work of Jesus Christ and whether we trust in him or not. So if you're feeling your conscience pricked, if you're feeling unsure, don't despair. Please, loved ones, don't despair. Turn to Christ, and he will edify and will assure you. Let's pray. Father, you have used the foolish things of this world to exhibit your wisdom, and you've used the weak things of this world to display your strength. And so we recognize that apart from you, our faith is hopelessly weak, but we recognize that that faith is a faith that you have given us. Lord, and the quality of our faith and the strength of our faith does not determine the outcome of our salvation, but the strength and the quality and the stability of the one in whom we have faith. So Lord, give us a faith that trusts in the Lord Jesus, that grows and increases, and may that faith be fruitful and productive as we go about our lives and as we seek to grow more and more into the image of Jesus. We praise you. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.